invite you to open your Bible this morning to the book of Revelation chapter 4, uh, chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4. And just, uh, it's been two weeks since we've been in uh, our study here, and just to remind us uh, what we've uh, come through, because the sequence here matters, Uh, Jesus has just spoken the seven letters uh, to the churches of Asia Minor, uh, letters that were written for them and for us as well. The last letter, if you remember, to the church in Laodicea is written to a church that um, was just blind. Uh, They didn't see things the way they really were. They they were... um, rich church. Uh, they were a self-reliant church, a self-oriented church. Uh, they, they didn't think they needed anything. The cause of God clearly hadn't really gripped their heart at all. And so the, um, the, the prescription for a church like that is a fresh vision of the glory of God and, and the way things really are. And, and uh, that's what we have here in the uh, Revelation chapter 4 and 5. This is one vision. We'll just be looking at chapter 4 next week, Lord willing, at uh, chapter 5. Let's read the text. Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within and day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created." So far, reading in God's Word this morning, let's just ask Him to bless it. Oh, Lord, now we come weak, poor, blind, and yet, Lord, You are able to give sight to the blind. You are able, Lord, to do exactly what we need today to show us the truth about who You are and then what that means for who we are and what that means for our life, for our destiny. And so, Father, we ask that the Spirit would be poured out in abundance so that we could see the glory of God, the glory of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. If you could have uh, anything in the entire world, anything in the whole world, uh, what would you ask for? 
a great vacation, um, maybe a dream home, maybe a palace somewhere in Switzerland, that would be nice. Um, would you ask for health, long life, wisdom, great marriage, um, safety for your kids? What would you ask for if you could have anything? Well, this morning we, in Revelation chapter 4, we're going to see that the, the single greatest thing you could ever ask for and ever receive is a vision of the glory of God. The single greatest thing you could ever have is to actually see and know and experience the beauty and goodness and power and, and grace of God as He is. Uh, the, the vision that we have here, Revelation chapter 4 and 5, is a, it's, it's a pivotal um, vision, maybe the central point of the book of Revelation. Everything, in a sense, flows from this. Uh, we have early in, in chapter 1, if you remember, Jesus as He really is. Uh, Jesus, the, 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 the fearsome, terrifying, yet glorious and good Christ. And that Jesus speaks to the church in, in the letters of chapters 2 and 3. And that church needs to hear about, um, they, they need the veil pulled back so that they can see the reality of Christ as He is today, ruling and reigning uh, over all His creation. The following chapters, 6 really through the end of the book, are going to be about um, God's sovereign unfolding of human history according to His purposes and His plan, all by the might uh, and wisdom of Jesus Christ, the King who reigns. Everything flows from Revelation 4 and 5. And so it's a central uh, text. But it's a central text not just for the book of Revelation. It's a central text for your life and for my life. Uh, the single most defining and determining issue of your life is whether or not you see and acknowledge the scene we have here. Whether or not we really see and acknowledge the reality of God as He is. Not the God we make up in our mind, uh, but, but God as He actually exists. Whether or not we are in tune with, with Him. That's the single most defining and determining issue of your life in this world and forever. Nothing else comes close. The, um, if you're not a Christian today, the one part of the reason that you're not a Christian today is because you've not yet seen the reality of God as He is. Uh, you're not yet convinced that He has created you, and as your creator, you being the creature, you owe Him worship and obedience. Uh, that, that hasn't clicked yet for you, because when that clicks, when you, when you see the reality of God as He actually is, you're going to be hungry to hear about a gospel uh, of a Savior sent from heaven to live a perfectly obedient life in your place and to, to die bearing your sin on the cross so you can be rescued from condemnation and brought into communion and fellowship with this God. That'll be meaningful to you. But you need to see God as He is. For the church, it's critical that we see God as He is. For you as, as an individual believer. Because the reality is, you know, we see through glass darkly, don't we? When I, when I read these visions, I just have, a, maybe more than any other time going through Scripture, a sense of we just can't see it clearly as we ought. Because if we did... 
we would respond the way the, the uh, participants of worship here in heaven respond. You'll notice both in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, when, when God is revealed and the song is sung, uh, what happens is people fall down before him. It happens in chapter 4. If you look at uh, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. In chapter 5, you have the same thing. Verse 14, and the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. That's the natural, necessary response when you actually see God. In the Old Testament or throughout scriptures, when people come, um, when they realize that they're in the presence of God, they collapse. So why don't we? Because we see through a glass darkly. Our faith is, is, is weak, and yet God uh, desires today to help us see him. This is written so that we um, can actually see God by faith through his word. We can see God. God wants us to see the truth of who he is as he is. And so let's just go to work. Let's look at the text. The text begins with this summons to come up and, 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 and see. John writes, after this, and that matters because this uh, vision occurs immediately following the letters to the churches, and that's not an accident. The, the, the seven letters, if you remember, reveal a really struggling organization. Two of the seven churches are so bad, Jesus has no commendation for them at all. Just a warning, repent, straighten up, or I'm taking away the lampstand. Uh, two others have some good things about them, but, but they're, there's real significant problems that if they don't uh, deal with them, if they don't wake up and repent and turn, they're, they're going to come under judgment. Only two of them receive only commendation, and those two are really small, struggling, heavily persecuted churches. And so if you look at the lot of them, and remember the church, uh, those churches stand for the church as a whole, but if you look at the lot of them, particularly in their day, in the face of the might of Rome and the glory of Greece, man, it is not a significant, it's not an impressive picture. The, The church seems the definition of insignificance. Remember, this is the church that Jesus is building Well, it doesn't seem to be going that well. The the, the building process, um, it it just seems to have stalled out some. There'd be many reasons for discouragement if you're a Christian living in Asia Minor in the first century. But Jesus, immediately after the seven letters, now says to John, there's something you need to see, a message for the churches they need to see, the, the, the way things really are in heaven. And so when the apostle, when, when, the, the, uh, when, when Christ says to John, come up here, um, John is being invited now to look at things from a new perspective, from the perspective of the eternal throne room of heaven. 
Derek Thomas writes, the upward glance is a sign of a new perspective on things. John is being reminded that God is in control. The church may be languishing, Satan may be doing his worst, but God is reigning on high. And so this vision, and really the book of Revelation as a whole, is, is given to teach us to look at things from the perspective of heaven. It is never wise to simply rely on our sight, on, on things as we see them. So if you look at the church of Jesus Christ, it's a mistake to look only at the church. If you're, when you're looking at the world and all the crises, all the problems, it is a mistake to simply see the world. When you look at your own life, with all your weakness, all your failure, all your insecurities and doubts, it is a mistake to simply uh, look at your life. Because if you're only, you see, looking at these things as we see them, you're not seeing them as they really are. They have to be viewed, to be viewed correctly, from the perspective of heaven, from the perspective of the throne room of God. This book is given it, it, so that we can see things as they are. We, the, the veil is pulled back between time and eternity. And here we see a sovereign Lord and King at work with all authority and power to accomplish His purposes. And so John says, I was immediately caught up in the Spirit and then he tells us what he saw. And that's what his, that was his commission. Remember, write the things that you see. Write what I will show you. And here he's caught up into the throne room of heaven. A door is open. What a, there's a door in heaven. And that grants access. And that door is open to John. And he's invited into the most holy of holies. And there he, he sees the most awe-inspiring things, the most worship-inducing scene in all of reality. And it would be easy to get lost in the details of the vision. We have, we have strange things here, a, a, a rainbow that goes all the way around the throne, a sea of glass, lamps of fire, living creatures with um, six wings and eyes all around and, and with different sorts of faces. Uh, you can get lost in the weeds, but the details are not the primary point. So identifying exactly what these different things are is, is not the, the primary point. They are all part of the scene to point to the, the central thing, which is the throne and the glory of the one who is seated there. That's, that's the central point of the scene. Jesus wants us to see the glory of God, the glory of Jesus the Son. And so we're going to look then at uh, what, what does this scene tell us about God? First, it shows us a sovereign God, a sovereign God. I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Remember, these are images. These are paintings. This is not a, uh, this is not a journalist reporting on um, something that, that, that he's witnessed in the, in the sense that we would have a newspaper reporter do that. Uh, John has a vision and, and he sees a throne. But there, is there a literal throne in heaven where God the Father is seated? No, there's not, right? God doesn't sit. He doesn't have a body. 
The point is that there is a throne, which means there is a central place of all authority, all sovereign power. God does not sit, but he does rule. He reigns. And John wants us to sense that this place of of rule, authority, reign. There's a throne. Beakey writes, the word throne occurs in the New Testament 62 times. 47 of those times occur in the book of Revelation. 47 of the 62 occur right here. The book is dominated by the idea that there is a throne in heaven at the center of all things and that there is a glorious one who sits upon that throne. That is really, really good news for a struggling church. That's, a, that's great news for, for you and me as we live in a world when we sense the fragility of our life, uh, the frailty of men, of our institutions, uh, even of our own abilities. We, 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 we sense that we are easily cast about and, and, and even destroyed by powers greater than ourselves. And, and this book, the last written testament of Jesus to the church is full of throne. Jesus wants you and I to know our lives are not in the hands of political entities or economic realities or, or in the hands of, of health issues or, 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 or relationship struggles and problems. Those are not the things that define our life. They, they don't determine our destiny. There's a throne, and someone is seated on that throne, and his name is Jesus, and he's ruling on your behalf and my behalf. Jesus is pleading with us to see it and to believe it. It'll make so much difference. Uh, people talk, even Christians talk, about... Um, about the world. And, and, and I, right, why, why do we grumble and complain? Do we grumble and, and, and complain because um, there's just no one on the throne? Well, we grumble and complain because we forget that there's someone on the throne. We're not, we're not, we're not living in light of the reality of, of the reign of God. Uh, but, but this is such, so important for us to remember that this world, everything in it, is, is operating according to the sovereign will and purpose of the God who is. The question then will be, you see, is he good? If you have a king who has absolute power, he, who, who can do whatever he wishes with your life, the question that you'll want to answer is, is he a good man? Is, is she a good queen? Is she a good, kind, benevolent person? Or, or is she wicked and evil and destructive? It's going to make all the difference. Well, John wants us to see, God wants us to see, the glory and goodness of God. So he writes, He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. There's someone on the throne. And he is beautiful beyond telling. You'll find throughout the Bible that when the writers are given a vision of God, Ezekiel chapter 1 is a great example. Maybe this afternoon you just want to go home and, and read Ezekiel chapter 1, even for devotions. 
around the table. Because it's a, it's a vision, a throne room vision, and Ezekiel uses a lot of the same language, but he ends up saying the same sorts of things. The, the, the appearance was, it, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. It, it's third removed. You, you can't find actual words or images to portray what is divine. What, it, what is surpassing in glory. And so John just grasps what we know, jewels, glass, thunder, images and experiences that we have some relation to and, and, and can, and can um, visualize to try to give us a sense of this being. So Jasper and Carnelian. Well, those are stones. Both, of, uh, both are made of um, sand, silica, so they both have the, an, an opaque um, nature, glossy, colorful. They can be different colors, but red and a deep, vibrant, uh, blood-like red is, is very common. Um, the, the, the sea of glass, like crystal, in those days, glass was not clear. It was, it was very opaque. They hadn't yet perfected the art of glass making. But, but John sees glass that's like crystal. So brilliant, shimmering expanse of light. Think of a sea of diamond that reflects light with perfect clarity and purity and brilliance. So the, the, the image you see is, is of refulgent beauty and goodness and light beyond anything you've ever seen or imagined. There's, in the, the vision that John has, there's a, just an overwhelming sense of, of glory, of light, and goodness. And that's essential for us to realize in a world that is darkened by sin and fear and disease and death and shame. We need to, we need to, to remember and realize that what we see in, the, in, in this world, in the darkness of this world, is, is not all there is. In fact, at the center of things that are, there is beauty and glory and goodness and light. At the center of things that are. And, and the beauty will win. The goodness will triumph. It, it's already won. The light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, and the darkness will not overcome it. And so no matter what, how dark the darkness that you're looking at might be, it is not finally what will stand. The light stands. The goodness stands. The glory and beauty stands. We need to remember our God and he's a faithful God. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. Uh, there's debate about who are these elders. Some think they're angelic beings. I think it's more plausible that this is representing the church uh, of all ages, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 uh, apostles of the New Testament. They, they represent the church of both old and new all gathered together, all saved by grace and through faith. But I think the most important thing to see, again, right, we're not to focus on the identity of these beings, but what are they doing? And, 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 and the things that they're wearing, and, 
and, and where they're seated, you see, all reflects the glory of God and the, and the faithfulness of God. Notice they are wearing precisely what Jesus said they would wear. They're wearing white robes and crowns. And they're seated exactly where Jesus said they would be seated, on thrones. He promises even in, in uh, the letter to the church in Laodicea, 321, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne and, and, and other letters as well. You will reign with me. And so we, we, we see the faithfulness of God. What happens in, in heaven is exactly what Jesus promised would happen in every detail. And the church needs to know that. The church is being persecuted. And it's going to be attacked by the world. It's going to be betrayed by the flesh. It's going to be tempted by the devil. Men will fail and the church will struggle and falter. But God will be faithful. God will be faithful. We will receive in Christ exactly and everything promised to us in Christ. The link between your present and your destiny is the faithfulness of God, and it cannot and will not be broken. And no matter how great your weakness might be, the faithfulness of God is fully sufficient in every way so that the you that is right here in this room this morning and the you of eternity and the presence of God are inseparably bound together by the faithfulness of God. Do we believe it? Think of, think of the fear that could wash away from your life if you just grabbed onto that truth and believed it. God wants us to believe it. He wants us to see it. God is sovereign. God is glorious and good. God is faithful and God is holy. And the rest of the vision in this chapter is taken up with the, with the holiness of God. Uh, John sees thunder, hears thunder, and sees lightning. Um, is there an actual thunderstorm happening around the throne? I don't think so. I think, again, it's, it's what do you feel when you are in the midst of a great thunderstorm? Boys and girls, uh, when the thumb, thunder is so loud, it, it rattles the house, rattles the windows, and, and the lightning explodes. Do you, what, how do you feel? Well, usually um, you feel scared. It is so loud. And it's so present. And guess what, boys and girls? Big people can feel the same way. Because there's, I mean, thunder is almost like a voice from another world. It's rumbling and rolling and and the lightning. I mean, if, you, if you're close to a lightning strike, I don't know anyone's like, oh, that was interesting. You just sense, that could have, that could have pulverized me in a minute, right? When you... That's the sense that John wants us to get. That, that there's, when you are in the presence of God, you just realize you're in the presence of something otherworldly, something overwhelmingly mighty, significant. His voice fills the whole world and, and can pulverize you. It's not safe in the presence of God. John... That's his sense. That's what he wants us to feel, that God is overwhelming. God is frightening in his holiness. And, there, and then you have all this happening. Remember at the, at the uh, Mount Sinai when all this is happening, God appears and there's thunder and there's lightning and it's, and it's loud and it's terrifying. And the people said, 
to Moses, you go for us. We're not going. Well, the scene is added then too with these seven torches of fire. I mean, just if you can judge, try to imagine this, these seven being the number of fullness again, torches of fire, the Spirit of God is there. Then there's these four living creatures, one on each side of the throne, and all of them full of eyes, and each with six wings, and we can easily get lost in the mechanics of that. How do six wings even work? And, and with eyes all over, what does that look like? Well, again, it's not what does it look like, it's what is it pointing to? What is it, what is it telling us about God? And, and, and I think the, the, the most concise way is that these four is the number of earth, the four corners, the, the four winds. Um, these creatures signify all creation worshiping its creator and Lord. The lion is the king of the um, untamed animals, in a sense. Uh, the ox is the king of the, of the, um, the, the cultivated animals, the tamed animals. The, the eagle is the king of the air. Man is king in, uh, over the earth. And, and all of them, these four creatures, each with these faces, are day and night, nonstop, without ceasing, singing praise to God as it ought to be because of who God is. Notice what they sing, finally, the song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Derek Thomas mentions a very interesting fact. (laughs) He says, in the Bible, where God's name is mentioned, it is qualified by the adjective holy more often than it is by all the other qualifiers put together. Right? So if you take all the things that you could say about God, all of his attributes, in the Bible, he's qualified by the word holy more than all of the rest of them put together. If you were to ask people today to describe what God is like, right? just go on the street and ask people, how would you def- what would you describe God? What attribute do you think of when you think of God? I think the most common attribute would be love. God is loving, which he is. But interestingly, that is not the attribute that um, the Bible speaks most prominently of and that the songs in heaven are, are most about. You see, it is, it is the holiness of God that makes the love of God extraordinary and incredible. It is the holiness of God, which means the otherness of God, unrivaled, unlike us, not needing us, God didn't create us because there was a lack in himself. Uh, He doesn't need us. He's he's full of everything. Everything comes from him and belongs to him and is to be given to him. And and that's what happens in the worship. It's these creatures and the elders, so all of creation and the church, throwing themselves down in in front of the throne, in front of the glory of God, and giving honor and praise to him, casting their crowns before him. The, the crowns, remember, are what Jesus promised as a reward to those who endured. It, it's, it's, it's God's gracious response to those who've conquered by their testimony and by faith in Christ. But they take these golden crowns and they cast them down. You see, no one in heaven is going to be pointing at their badges. I did this and then I did that and then, we, then, and then I really, I was, that was a good day. Um, I, I really uh, stood for the Lord uh, right there. Nope, nobody's going to be talking that. All the glory 
goes to Jesus. All the glory, they take, you take the crown, a gift of grace, and you lay it down before the glory of God. And you worship Him, only Him. He is worthy, such a weighted word, worthy to receive glory, alone worthy of adoration. Worthy of honor. Honor is what we pay to things that matter, things that have weight and significance. On Memorial Day, we recognize and remember men and women who gave their life, sacrificed their life for our freedom. There's something right about that because there's a weight and a significance to that sacrifice. Well, honor then is what we give to God. The weight and the, of the glory of God, all Honor belongs to him. He's worthy of power. Some people are not worthy of power. They've been given power. They're not worthy of it. They use the power to the wrong ends. God is worthy of all power. He always only uses his omnipotence to the perfect ends. His own glory. The manifestation of his own grace in the world. So he always uses his power in ways that are eternally good and for eternally good ends. That's the vision. Why does the church need to hear it? Well, because they live in the same world that we live in, a world where things can be so hard and there's often fear, where persecution can happen by mighty forces like the Roman Empire, and you really can be ostracized for your faith by your community because you refuse to participate in the pagan idolatries of the culture. The church really can be led astray by false teaching and, and, and undermined by worldliness and sin. And to human eyes, the church can seem weak and insignificant and powerless, and you wonder why you sacrifice so much of your time and, 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 and money and just to belong to the church. There are more and more people who are making the decision. It's not worth it. Every, every time the census comes out, the number of nuns, no religious affiliation, increases. People are just deciding the church isn't really worth my time. It's, it's, there, there are other things to be done that have more significance and weight. Why won't you do that? Why shouldn't you do that? Because this God exists, and this Jesus has made you his church, that, that things are not what they seem to human eyes. They are, they're according to the way God sees them. We, we can be cynical Christians. We really can, more than we know. We can say that we believe, and yet we struggle to trust. And the faith that we profess, is it really giving you joy in your life? Does the faith that you profess bring a hunger for purity and, and goodness? Do you, want, do you want your life to matter for God, or is it just what you believe and then you get on with things? See, friends, God has re reveals himself to you and me on purpose. God wants you to see him. He wants me to see him, the truth of who he is. And that's why he's given us Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And, and more significantly, it's why he's given us Jesus Christ. God could have left us in our blindness, but he gave us Jesus, who is the picture of God in perfection. There, the love and the grace and the justice and the holiness and the power and goodness of God are all displayed in most vibrant, beautiful colors in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. 
There, there is a grace in Jesus that is so deep and so free and so good and so abundant that it can destroy our cynicism and, and purify our perversion with a revelation of the truth of infinite holy love. Jesus is not a Sunday school figure. He is, he is the one on the throne who gave his life to purchase yours. And worship, then, you see, centers on him. God wants us to see our lives and our identity and our destiny in the light of his glory, his accomplishment, his victory and power. And so let's just pray that God opens our eyes to see it. Turn off the TV. Put away Facebook for a while. Get rid of, just be done for a while with Instagram and, and Snapchat, all the things that keep you chattering and chattering and chattering with other fallen people. And engage your heart. Engage your heart with the glory and beauty, the overwhelming reality of God. It won't happen without taking the time to look and pay attention and, and see and open his Bible saying, God, I just want to know you. And prayer, uh, praying, Lord, just show me, show me what's true. And, and, then, and then being in the word and, and coming to church week after week just to gain an, a new perspective, God's perspective. And then taking the things that you learn and, and placing the truths of your life under those truths. Take all the truth of your weakness, the truth of your sin, your failure, your unbelief, your fears and, and failures, your shame, and take all of the reality of those things and place them under the light of the goodness and the glory and the power of God and Jesus Christ and see if that doesn't change the way you feel, the way you live, the way you think, the way you pray, as you are increasingly seeing things as they really are in him. May God grant it to us. Amen. God in heaven, we're, we're, more, um, we're more blind and cynical and unbelieving than we know. And yet I thank you that it is your good pleasure to open our eyes. Father, you know the sins we've given ourselves to this week. You know the, the self-reliance, the self-orientation, self-service. Things that make no sense in light of the glory of God. And so we confess them as foolishness, as wickedness. But Lord, we need to see, we need to see who you are. Because seeing you purifies us. It makes us see the, 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 the tawdry truth of our idols. And the foolishness of unbelief. And Lord, it reorients us to what actually is, and it's glorious and good and honorable. It's mighty, it's able to save us to the uttermost. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit this week would keep directing our minds and our hearts to God and to Jesus Christ, where you've revealed yourself for sinners as a great Savior, a loving shepherd, faithful, merciful high priest and a wonderful reigning king. Everything that we need we have in him. And Lord, please, by your spirit then, then move us away from self and infatuation with things that are temporal and, 
And Lord, give us a, a deep resonating desire for things that are eternal. Things that have glory. And Lord, may we walk then with joy and comfort and peace on this pilgrim road until we enter that open door and see our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's close our service this morning in song, By the Sea of Crystal, Saints in Glory Stand. Let's stand.